Thank you, Peter. <laughs> well, we're still in this uh, series on being prisoners of hope, shackled to the hope that we have in Christ. And uh, this week I came across a quote, hope appears absurd to those who lack it. Hope appears absurd to those who lack it. And the story I want us to look at today, uh, I was trying to think of, and, and I'll just be really honest, you know, we were like, hey, it's Mother's Day, let's try to, to talk about women of faith. And so we're looking at, I was going to try to tackle Ruth and Esther, and it was just way too much. So we're looking at Ruth, and I want you to just to, uh, if you want to look at the first chapter of Ruth, that's where we're going to mainly be focused. There's some really interesting things that happen there just in the first chapter that set the stage for God to act on behalf of people who have experienced great trauma, chaos, tragedy in their lives. You could say that the story of Ruth, the whole book of Ruth, is this idea that God and people are somehow intertwined, working together, and it's hard to see. There's some ambiguity of how much is it that people need to just do things and God works through them, and how much is it that God is just doing things and is present and is working. It's very interesting, I came across uh, some rabbinic writings on the book of Ruth, and they talk a lot about this interplay between people faithfully doing things in this world, faithfully stepping out into situations, even uncomfortable situations, tragic situations, people being faithful, and God blessing them in their faithfulness, and the other side of the coin of people just going about their lives and God working behind the scenes, God changing the course of history, God writing new futures for them in tragedy. There's this strange ambiguity of how much is it people and how much is it God and what's the blend and it's really beautiful as it all comes together in the story of Ruth, the story of Ruth. So let me set the scene. The story of Ruth takes place in the time of the Judges. And the time of the judges was a chaotic time. If you remember this all, let me bring you up to speed on how they get to this period of the judges in the Old Testament. So the people of God have been in slavery in Egypt. They don't belong there. God promised them this land long ago. He sets them free from slavery through Moses. They wander in the wilderness. They get to the promised land. They finally get to enter a whole generation later. They finally get to enter... They, they get to settle in this land and there's sort of generic peace except for the fact that there's still these other groups of people around them who begin to influence them. So there's these other people groups around them who begin to influence them with their gods, their culture, their customs, and the people of God never really are able to 100% focus on worshiping God. Never 100% able to to clearly be this people that that focuses on worship of God and living according to Yahweh's plans. So the book of Judges, it starts, starts, there's these bookend statements. At the beginning it says, a whole generation had been, or uh, after this whole generation that knew of God's rescue, after this whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. So there's a whole generation now in the time of Judges that doesn't know what God has done for them. They weren't connected to the the wilderness wanderings and God's provision. They're just in this land. 
And at the end, at the end of the book of Judges, we read another statement that says, Israel in those days had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is the statement of the times in which the book of Ruth is written. That there's a generation that doesn't really know about God's provision, God's rescue, God's um, intimacy with the people, the closeness he had through the ages. They don't know about that. And they didn't have a king at this time, so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There's no greater sense of identity or purpose amongst the people at this time. And there's this cycle in the book of Judges that we read. Where the people, they, they let themselves fall into, a, into sin and into where they're not following God and they start to worship other gods. And, and an outside people group conquers them and starts to rule them. And then finally, the, the oppression gets so hard that they cry out to God and this is where God raises up these judges, these leaders, who, who for a moment, for, for a blip of history, sets them free and, and points them back towards God. But they get comfortable again and complacent again. And so this is the cycle of the judges where they, they go, God, help us, and God does help them. And then they go, well, this is pretty great. And oh, those people's gods are pretty interesting. Let's go over here. And God raises up a judge, and the cycle continues. This is the context for the book of Ruth. Ruth takes place in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this chaotic time, this period of the judges. And if that's not enough chaos alone... We read at the beginning of the book of Ruth that there's a famine in the land of Judah. There's a famine in the land of Judah. So, so Naomi, Naomi, who's the matriarch of the family that we're going to learn about here as we go along, she and her husband Ahimelech, what a great name. Why does nobody name their kids Ahimelech? It's a biblical name, friends. Why are we not doing this? Come on. So, so they... Elimelech. It's even better without the, the huh, Elimelech. It just rolls right off the tongue, doesn't it? So Naomi and Elimelech, I can't even say this guy's name, they go with their two sons because things have gotten so bad in Judah, they need food. And so they go to this foreign area called Moab. And you need to know that Moab is one of Israel's rivals. Moab, it was a huge story of who are the Moabites, where did they come from, but there has been historic tension between Moab and Judah, but they're so desperate, things are so bad, things are so chaotic that this family, this Israelite family goes to Moab to get food. And as the course of events happened, the Hebrew sons, these, these Jewish boys marry Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. Yes, Oprah's parents got her name wrong. They tried to name her after Orpah and they switched. There you go. That's a freebie for this morning. I found that in my readings, and I was like, really? People felt like in these scholarly documents to just throw that one in there, just so that we knew where Oprah's name, anyway, whatever. So, chaos in the land, chaos in the story. They go to Moab. They're, they're displaced people. They're kind of refugees at this point. They settle in Moab. They meet these Moabite women. The sons get married, and tragedy strikes. Elimelech dies. The sons both die. Naomi, at this moment, is left alone with these daughters-in-law who are foreign. They're Moabite women. And what, what is she supposed to do? What is she supposed to do? Why would anyone at this moment have hope? This is where that line that I said at the beginning jumps out. Hope seems absurd 
to those who lack it. Why would anybody in this situation have hope? There's just chaos. They're displaced, and then all these, the sons and the husband die. And now Naomi is left in this strange land, a place where they worship strange gods with these daughter-in-laws that I'm, I'm sure she loves them, yet they're not her own flesh and blood. There's no children or grandchildren at this point to, to really strengthen that bond. It's a time of chaos. Hope seems absurd. If you're reading the story and you hear about that, you're not jumping to hope. You're not jumping to hope. But the text takes a turn and it says, Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. So she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home. It's interesting that it says return home because for these Moabite women, that's not home. They've never lived there. That's a foreign place for them with a foreign God, foreign people, foreign cousins and grandparents and people that they, they don't know these people. It's all foreign to them. But Naomi decides we're going to go home. God has come through for the people. There's food in our homeland again. Let's go back. And so the the crew begins this journey back. And along the way, Naomi has this realization that taking these two daughters back with her is just kind of crazy. Just kind of crazy. The, The future that they had planned has been cut off. So why ruin their futures by taking them back with her? In fact, she she tries to set them free. She says, just go back to your people. Go back to your parents. Go marry. Go have a bright future, daughters-in-law whom I love. I'm I'm setting you free. Go home. Marry. She she even has this uh, this whole thing like, why would you go with me? What? Are you going to wait for me in my old age to have a child? And then you're going to wait for those children to grow up so that you can marry them? No, that's crazy. Go back. Go home. Because hope seems to be dashed for Naomi. Hope is dashed. Her her future that she planned and dreamed for has been ruined. But maybe not for these daughter-in-laws. Go back, daughter-in-laws. Verse 14 says, At this they wept aloud again in this parting moment. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth stays put. Ruth then says, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. What a strange statement in the midst of this chaos, right? Hope seems absurd at this moment, and yet Ruth clings to her mother-in-law. Ruth, who also has experienced all of this chaos of losing a a brother-in-law, losing a husband, losing a father-in-law, and now the mother-in-law is saying, let's go to this foreign place. And, and Ruth is trying to wrap her mind around that. And, and Orpah says, yeah, thank, I mean, thank you. It's sad. She's crying. But she says, thank you. I'm going to go back home. That's going to be a better life for me. And Ruth clings, clings to Naomi. What is going on here? I'm going with you. You will be my people. Your God will be my God. 
Where does this hope come from with Ruth? That's what I just kept asking myself this week. Why does Ruth seem to have hope? It seems absurd for both of them in this moment to have any sort of hope. Let's be honest. If all of this had happened to any one of us in the course of time, to, to switch it this fast and go, now I have hope. God is good. Here we go. It just seems like what is going on with Ruth that she's able to have this hopeful attitude that I'm going with you, Naomi. I'm all in with you. What is going on here? What is going on here? I want to do the next scene of the story, and then I want, to, I want to describe what I think is going on here, why they are able to have hope, why hope does enter the scene. Now, the next scene of the story, I think, is important for us to see the full, uh, full unveiling of the character of Naomi and who she is, which is an important piece of this story, a very important piece to the book of Ruth. They return home, and as they're coming out, so now it's Ruth, remember, and Naomi, and they're going back to Bethlehem, back home. And they're being greeted by people who would be family members and friends, and they're so excited to greet them, and yet they see that they're coming back beaten, sad. They've lost. And the women exclaim, can this be Naomi? And listen to how Naomi responds. She says, don't call me Naomi. Now, just aside, in Hebrew, Naomi means pleasant one. Pleasant one. Her parents, when they saw her, were like, the pleasant one, our pleasant child. But she says, don't call me pleasant one. Call me Mara, which in Hebrew means bitter. Call me bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant one? Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. She says, call me by a new name. My life has been so tough. You don't even know me anymore. I am now to be known as bitter. That's the place Naomi is in. That's the place she's in, the way she's feeling about all that she has felt. And I've got to tell you, I don't blame her one bit. I don't blame her one bit for feeling this way, feeling like you can just call me bitter. After everything I've been through, everything I experienced, this is where I'm at. This is how I want you to see me. She's bitter. She's bitter. Yet there's another way of looking at this. And it's very fascinating to me how this all kind of came together and wove itself together. There's an author who said this, she's not whining or griping. She's with great poignancy articulating her rage. She's not mute. She's not stoic. And then he said this, in classic biblical style, she voices her rage. It made me immediately think of all this journey we've been through of talking about lament and then hope on the backside of lament. It made me imagine, is Naomi just another character in the Bible who's who's showing us another person of faith in the Bible, who's showing us that it's not just about being bitter. She's not just bitter, but there's hope in there. It's hard to see it. But see, biblical lament, biblical rage, what we looked at before Easter, 
always recognizes that we take it to God and say, God, I don't like the way things are. I don't like what has happened. Why, God? But we do that as the psalmists shake their fists at God even. Say, God, where are you? It always, at the end of biblical lament, see, it always says that, no, but, I'm, but God, I'm looking for you to redeem the situation. I'm believing, God, in the midst of of the ugliness, the messiness of what's going on right now, that you, God, I'm taking it to you, my anger to you, believing you can redeem it. It's an interesting thing to read the text this way in light of the journey we've been on looking at lament to hope. To look at, is Naomi just going to stay in this bitter place? Is she just going to stay in this place and say, forever now, forever I am bitter. That's my future. That's the story. There'll be no changing it. See, if you only knew chapter one and you only read this far, you might think that's where the story of Naomi's life is going to end. She's just going to be bitter because hope seems absurd at this point. Hope seems absurd. And so there's two things that I want to tackle as we, as we go through this this morning. One, is Naomi going to stay bitter or are we seeing an example here of, of biblical lament where hope is going to come? Biblical lament, rage of crying out saying, I, I'm angry God, but I know you can redeem the situation. And the second question I want to unpack is, how is it that Ruth is staying so hopeful? I think that, that, that one to me is so fascinating to think of this, this foreign woman, this Moabite woman who is staying hopeful, is clinging to this Israelite, this foreigner. Again, there was tension between these people and she's saying, I'm willing to go back to a people that aren't going to like me, aren't going to accept me, aren't going to want me, but I'm willing to go back with you to them because of what? What is the connection that's making her want to go back with Naomi. Question one, is Naomi going to stay bitter? I recently heard this sermon by Erwin McManus, who pastors Mosaic Church in Hollywood, and now they have many satellite campuses, and he was describing the danger of of going into bitterness, deep into bitterness, and I thought immediately of Naomi, and, and I heard this message, and he said this, bitter people stay bitter because they never let God create a new future for them. The only way you can stay bitter, think about Naomi here, is surrendering your future. If you hold on to bitterness, you let go of your future. Because bitterness demands you live in the past. I thought that was such an interesting statement to think about in light of Naomi. Has she surrendered her future? You know, I imagine that she dreamed one day of she and Elimelech returning to their family and friends in Judah. The famine is over, and they're coming back with grandkids. And there's a huge celebration. Oh, God blessed you when you went to Moab. God provided for Naomi. I imagine they dreamed those dreams. They had a future planned out of the family growing up together, sharing life together. They had these dreams, these plans, these futures And it was all taken away. It was all taken away. And so she's in this place of bitterness going, God, could God provide a new future? I don't know yet. And so hope seems absurd to her because her future seems taken away. And she's now saying, I'm bitter 
in this moment where we're at right now in the text, she has surrendered her future, so it seems. I wonder if you can relate at all. If you can relate at all to to dreams you have dreamed, futures you have planned that have taken a tragic turn, have ended. Where, Where something happened, something cut in, something took place that made you dream new dreams or, or, or made it really, really hard to dream at all. Can you relate to Naomi? Have you felt bitter? Have you felt angry at God? Have you felt angry enough to begin surrendering your future? Have you been in that place where you've been so focused on something that happened in the past, something that was taken that you can relate to Naomi, who says, just from now on, call me bitter. Call me bitter. And the question is, the question is that, that I asked is, will Naomi stay bitter? Will she finally forever surrender her future and say, forget it. I'll never dream another dream again. It's over. Will you, will I, will we stay bitter? Will we surrender our futures in moments like these? Will we, the, will we allow these situations in life, these tragedies that come, these, these curveballs that come, will we allow these things to rob us of our future? And, I, and I, the, this other question popped into mind based on what Erwin McManus had said. Will we allow these things to rob God of the opportunity to redeem the mess? See, if we believe as people of faith that God is in the business of redeeming us, redeeming our world, redeeming the messes we make, will we allow God to do that work? Will we look for it when God is redeeming things or will we say, no, I'm just going to stay in this place of bitterness, surrendering our future, telling others that hope, hope, that's absurd. Now, now I'm not suggesting that that in situations like Naomi's situation, we should just move on, get over it. Hurry up and get to that place where you start to think that that God's got big plans for you. Come on, let's go. I myself have been in places of tragedy, hardship. Just hanging out with family last night and and thinking about um, some family that we have in Santa Barbara and thinking of a time in my life in high school when I lost uh, my grandparents who were... I was really close to them. We, we grew up around them. I was with them nearly every week, if not twice a week. And tragically, both of their lives were cut short. And I remember how it changed, seemingly changed the path our family was on as a whole. Our future changed. What everything looked like changed. And it wasn't what any of us wanted. And certain events happened that made people enraged in our family, angry. But what are you going to do in those moments? Are you going to allow those moments to define you, describe you, consume you? I wonder for Naomi here if, she, she was, if she's going to stay in this place of bitterness. If we stay in this place of bitterness, the question for her is, does she actually lose her very self? Where, where Naomi, if she says, no, 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 I'm not even that person anymore. 
I'm this new person, the walking embodiment of bitterness. Will she just lose herself in that? Could someone get lost in that new identity, their old self swallowed up in bitterness? But here's the thing, and here's the transition that I want to make, because I actually think Naomi doesn't stay bitter. And it's a beautiful thing, because we see it in the text. We see this, this growth in Naomi. We see that Naomi starts to see that God is working behind the scenes. God can redeem the situation. God is there for us. She starts to see it. We start to see that Naomi is actually a person of immense faith. Immense Faith, she, she knows that God can redeem messy situations. I'm going to guess, and, and I'm just going to tell you straight up, um, I'm doing what my seminary professors told me never to do, and that is I'm 100% reading into the text right now. So just deal with it. You're not going to find these verses in there, but there's enough that I think alludes to this that is so beautiful in this text. See, I think Naomi... I'm imagining that Naomi believed that God provided for her and her family when they went to Moab. That they were at this place where they're going, God, there's famine in the land. We have these sons. What is the future for us here? And that them going to Moab was God pushing them to Moab, going, I'll provide for you in Moab. Go. And faithfully they went and they met these amazing women from Moab and their sons married and oh, God provided. I'm wondering how much Naomi talked about this amongst their family, how much Ruth and Orpah would have picked up on our God provides. I don't know about your Moabite God, but let us teach you about our God. Our God, when there was a time of famine, He provided in this place. And daughters-in-law, He provided us with you and we love you. Can you imagine these family conversations? That, that, that Naomi is, was, was not always this bitter person, but was a person of immense faith. That God had took us here and God provided for us. Isn't God good? I imagine those were the family conversations. And I'm going to guess this because it helps me get to question number two. Why is it that Ruth clings to Naomi? Why is it that Ruth is willing to sacrifice her future of, of having happiness in Moab with what is normal and what is familiar? Why, why is she so willing to leave and go back to Judah, a foreign place? With her mother-in-law, without other children, there's, what, is, what is Ruth's future going to look like going to this new place without a husband, a foreigner? But for some reason, Ruth is hopeful, and I'm guessing Ruth is hopeful. Ruth is clinging to her mother-in-law because she's picked up some of her mother-in-law's faith. Again, I'm reading 100% into this, but I love it. I love this idea that Naomi actually has been talking to her daughters-in-law, helping them make a, a, a conversion, if you will, to loving the Lord, their God, with all their heart and soul and strength and mind. That they've learned somehow about this God, Yahweh, who has provided for people. And she's learned that and she says, oh, my mother-in-law is bitter, but I'm going to have 
Even in this moment where hope seems absurd, I'm wondering if Ruth is clinging to hope, if she's clinging to it because she's learned from Naomi that God is good. And even in this moment of messiness, we believe God will redeem the situation. And so she says, I'll go with you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I'm wondering if Naomi, in fact, I'm convinced that Naomi was a spiritual mother to Ruth. Naomi was a spiritual mother to Ruth. Not just a mother-in-law, not just family, but taught her the basics of faith in Yahweh. And that's what makes Ruth say, I'm going to cling to you. Not not just to you as my mother-in-law, but to you because you also have taught me so much about your God, this God that loves us and cares for us. So I'm going with you. I wonder, as we think about Mother's Day and acknowledge in the prayer, sometimes it, it's, it can get awkward on Mother's Day. How much do we go over the top on Mother's Day and just celebrate moms and, and kind of ignore the fact or, or forget to acknowledge the fact that this can be a difficult day for some? Today I was just thinking about this Ruth and Naomi relationship and thinking about what a great opportunity to encourage us to be, to encourage you to be spiritual mothers, spiritual parents. I mean, we're living in this time, we had this great example up here this morning of just the, the connection of generations and the opportunity that we have in the church, that this doesn't happen I don't think this happens where people of this diverse kind of background and, and people that otherwise, like, why would we hang out other than we come to church together and we're worshiping the same God and we have this chance to rub shoulders with people who are very different from us. Some of my best friends in ministry, people I know are so different from me. So different from me. My, one of my best friends from my, my, the church staff I worked with in Washington has a PhD in the organ. And it's like, how are you friends with him? You're the athlete guy and he's the PhD and the organ guy. Well, it happens because of our common faith in Christ. That's why it happens. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't have ever rubbed shoulders with each other. In the church, friends, we have this amazing opportunity to be spiritual mothers and fathers to people. To share faith with others. See, the, the, the question that somebody asked as I was looking at this that I love so much is, how can we live so that people would look at us and say, your God will be my God? Again, what was Naomi doing? What did she teach Ruth? That Ruth says, everything I've learned about you and your God, I want that for me forever. I'm not willing to surrender that future. This future of walking in the ways of Yahweh. I'm not surrendering that. I'm going with you, mother-in-law, in the midst of this tragedy. How can we live so that others would look at us like Ruth looks at Naomi and says, I want what you have. How do we live? How do we work? How do we speak to people? How do we encounter our neighbors so that people say, there's something about you And this God that I know you worship, that that I want that in my life too. Maybe it's the way we respond to tragedy in our lives. And people go, wow, I don't know how you have hope. 
Because if I were you, I wouldn't have hope in that situation. Hope seems absurd to those who lack it. But for those of us who do have hope, how can we live in such a way so that people see our lives and see how we respond to the world and interact with the world and interact with our fellow human beings so that people say, I want that. I want your God to be my God. What kind of a faith, what what kind of God are we presenting to people in the way we live and interact in this world? Are we telling about God's provision in our lives? Are we, are we telling about it enough that somebody would want, gosh, would say, I, I want that too. I want to know that God. Are we talking about God's grace and forgiveness and the community of faith that we get to be a part of so that others say, gosh, tell me more about that. I want your people to be my people, your God to be my God. It's such an interesting piece in this text that that I would have never seen before, but thinking about this opportunity to be spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers in the line of Naomi. What's so interesting, and last thing I want to say, is that the text ends. And if we're still wondering, you know, is Naomi going to stay in this place of bitterness? The text ends with Ruth And her new husband, Boaz, who happens to be a distant family member that they had kind of forgotten about, but God provides and God is working all these angles. Fascinating story, y'all. If you've never read the whole book of Ruth, go check it out. Because there's all these things where it's like, as luck would have it, Boaz, distant family member, had a field that Ruth starts working in. Oh, again, this ambiguity of how much is it that people faithfully do things and how much is it that God is always orchestrating life behind the scenes. There's this interplay. It's beautiful. But at the end of the story, Ruth's baby is finally born to Boaz. Redemption is fully alive in this baby. We're seeing a new future being written. We're seeing that they they chose not to surrender their futures in bitterness. And the women of the town say, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you, Naomi, without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout all Israel. He will renew your life, sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons. Whoa. Again, this Moabite foreigner woman who clung to Naomi in a time of need. She's better to you than seven sons. She has given birth. Naomi takes this child in her arms. You see the full picture of God's redemptive work in a messy situation as Naomi, who once said, call me bitter, is holding this child. And the women living there say, Naomi has a son. Not Ruth has a son. Naomi, pleasant one. She's redeemed to her herself. Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is where Ruth fits in to the, the full redemptive story of God's work in the world. King David. King David's grandfather born of a Moabite woman. Because these people in the midst of hope seeming absurd clung to hope, shackled themselves to hope, said, we are prisoners of hope. 
even in the midst of tragedy. And so we see at the end that that Naomi has relinquished her bitterness. That Naomi has surrendered her bitterness instead of surrendering her future. Hope appears absurd to those who lack it. So as people of hope, for you, for me, all of us gathered today, this Mother's Day 2018, as people of hope, as people of hope, let us live in such a way that people might say, I want your God to be my God. Would you pray with me? Lord, what an amazing story of faithfulness. God, your faithfulness and human faithfulness in the midst of tragedy. God, for all of us in this room who have experienced extreme tragedy in our lives, who know the chaos that Naomi and Ruth knew, Lord, be near to our brothers and sisters as maybe there's someone in this room who's even saying today, I'm still bitter. God, show them a glimpse of the future you can write for them. A future, Lord, that doesn't just help forget the past. That's not what you're in the business of doing, Lord. But that helps us honor the past, honor those who went before us, honor those we've lost, Lord, with the lives we get to live. Thank you, God, for the way that you encourage us, the way you redeem the messiest of situations. Lord, give us the opportunity to live our lives in such a way, encourage us to live our lives in such a way that people would see us, God, and say, we want not just what we have, Lord, but they want a relationship with you because they see what a difference having you makes in our lives. God, help us to live that way, to speak about who you are and how you've changed us. God, thank you for sending your Son who ultimately redeems all things. We pray this all in your Son's name, in Jesus' name. Amen. In song.